This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. The long and winding history of the sugar industry in the United States is complicated to say the least. The new book, On the Knife, A History of Sugar in Florida, tries to distill that story into a narrative of the experimentation and entrepreneurship and the politics and money that has led to the modern sugar industry as we know it today. It also delves into the human health and environmental impacts that the sugar industry plays a part in. We're joined today by its author, Nick Peniman. He spent his career in journalism and was publisher of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and VP of Newspaper Operations for Pulitzer Publishing Company. He's currently chair emeritus of the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, a trustee of the Everglades Foundation, and chair emeritus of the Conservancy of Southwest Florida. I spoke with him last week. Nick Peniman, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you. We would love for you to weigh in on our conversation or any of our shows using WGCU social media. Find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So for starters, just tell us a bit about your background. You were a newspaper publisher, right? Or I was a journalist uh, to begin with, but then went into the, the dark side, the business side of, of journalism, and uh, was a publisher of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for, for 14 years. When did you end doing that? 2000, when we moved to Florida. 2000. So what made you decide to write this book? This book was written as a result of another book, uh, an earlier book, which I wrote after the 2017 and 18 uh, outbreak of blue-green algae. and uh, dueling algae blooms, we like to call dueling algae blooms. And uh, actually, Mike became fascinated with the algae that was coming down the Caloosahatchee River. It is a cyanobacteria. And it contains a microcystin, which is actually toxic to uh, humans and dolphins and most mammals. So as a result, I began looking at the source of that particular substance, that microcystin, the blue-green algae, the cyanobacteria, and found it was Lake Okeechobee. So the question was, well, why is Lake Okeechobee so chock full of this stuff that's coming down the Caloosahatchee River and then going up the St. Lucie River as well? And uh, that led me to, obviously, a uh, look at the sugar industry uh, and their history with Lake Okeechobee. And I think that was probably the inspiration for the, for the next book. So how did you proceed to write this book? How did you do your research? It's very well researched. There's lots of footnotes and there's so many acts. There's so many sugar acts over the years. How did you wrangle all that information? Well, the Internet is a marvelous source for this kind of information. Um, but I also had some friends at the Everglades Foundation, uh, some lawyers who dealt with sugar issues for quite a long time. And basically, between the interview process and the research that I was doing uh, online, uh, I could come up with, I thought, a fairly comprehensive story about the history of, of sugar in the state of Florida. So your book starts all the way back with like the where sugar fit into the culture deep into history, and then it moves its way forward into, you know, sugar in the United States. When did the modern structure of sugar and the way it's grown and supported through government, when did that sort of initiate, would you say? Mike, the growing of sugar really took place in Louisiana before the Civil War. And then beet sugar was grown up in the northern states, Minnesota, North Dakota. But in Florida, uh, the problem was always the draining of the Everglades. There really wasn't enough activity uh, to form large farms. So there were experiments that happened over the years from about 1780 all the way up to the Civil War. 
And then after the Civil War, toward the turn of the century and the Gilded Age, uh, Florida became more uh, and significantly operative for agriculture. And sugar was replacing timber, was replacing cotton, and other things south of uh, Lake Okeechobee. So in terms of growing sugar, Louisiana technology came in, and some of the hybrid plants that they used came in. Uh, there was experimentation with new hybrids, and basically sugar grown south of Lake Okeechobee turned out to be highly, highly productive in terms of the yield per acre. Identifying the land south of Lake Okeechobee as being potentially productive is what led to the southern area behind, beneath the lake drain for sugar, right? That, that's pretty much, you know, I know the dike was built for safety reasons, but that land was identified while it was still a swamp. Yeah. And a lot of the drainage took place in the 20s after two major hurricanes uh, that wiped out a lot of the cities south of the lake. But the real plumbing system that's in place today took place after 1947, once there was some heavy rains in uh, southeastern Florida, and they decided actually to create a whole system of drainage uh, on the eastern part, and that began the process by which the Everglades agricultural area south of the lake began to be formed. So I'm going to just go through some bullet points. The story of sugar, booms and busts, beets versus cane, domestic versus foreign, processors versus producers, Florida versus Louisiana, national security implications, global geopolitics, Cuba, the Cold War, all of these things are woven into the story of sugar. Absolutely. I think that the foreign policy aspect of it became a national security issue uh, because they found that sugar uh, was used as part of the propellant for artillery shells and tank shells in World War I. And of course, with the European continent being practically wiped out, the beet sugar, which was being grown over there, wasn't available. So Cuba and the United States and the Caribbean became the source of sugar for the propellant that went into artillery shells. That continued uh, to World War II, same sort of thing. So basically, there was a national security reason for it to be uh, useful and produced in quantities and controlled carefully as to where the sugar was grown and where it was sent. And so that's when things like import quotas and uh, price controls started coming into the equation? Actually, the first way to control the, the amount of sugar grown in Florida and in the rest of the country was a tariff beginning in 1789. In 1934, with the Jones-Costigan Act, that was uh, lifted and what they decided to do was to control the amount of sugar grown and not put a tariff on it necessarily. So that's the way they tried to control the price. Then later, they in 1977, well after Cuba Revolution, uh, they moved to the current system where they have financial subsidies and supports for the sugar industry. So what is the current state of those subsidies right now in the United States? You know, how does it work? Uh, basically, the processors are given a loan uh, by the federal government. And if sugar that they sell based on the allotment that is available exceeds the amount of the allotment, then what happens is the government buys that excess sugar and turns it into ethanol. So how do they buy it? They buy it with taxpayer dollars. And they forgive the loan that they've made to the processors. And the processors then forgive the loan they made back to the growers. 
So it's a whole sequence of money flowing uh, from the government to the processors and back into the, to the growers. From what I've read, somewhere between $2.4 and $4 billion a year are put toward that, or what would you say from your research? That's very hard to tell. Um, the industry is opaque in terms of their financial uh, disclosure, uh, and the government, the Agricultural Department, and the Commodity Credit Corporation are equally opaque as to exactly how much money goes to sugar. And remember, it's not all just cane. It's also the beet sugar industry too. I mean, it's all put together. Into Which one historically, package. I was interested to learn that the beet sugar industry is where all the political power lay for a long time. Sure. When you've got those big <laughs> western and northern states with two senators and very little population, there's a lot of political power. Right. And you've got 13 states that grow beet sugar too and really only three states that grow cane sugar right now. So I, I interrupted you. You were explaining the, the how it works now. Well, the how it works now is that once again, there's a loan made uh, available to the processors. And if the amount of sugar that is produced can't be sold – uh, at the price, which is the American price, the domestic price, uh, we buy the sugar back at that price. Today, the world price is about 50% of the domestic price. 50% lower or half lower, as much. Right? Half as much. Uh, the domestic price that we in this country is set by Congress in the Farm Bill every four or five years whenever they redo the Farm Bill uh, and subject to a great deal of negotiation and obviously a great deal of political pressure uh, from the sugar industry because they want to get the highest possible price uh, for their sugar as it possibly can. So the difference is we pay about twice as much in this country uh, for sugar as in the world market. What's happened is the confectionery industry, jelly bean, for instance, has moved out of the United States. And the Mars Company is moving out of the United States. So Because the, of sugar costs. Because of sugar costs and quite honestly, they can find cheaper labor in Mexico and Understood. Thailand and other places like that. So, But sugar pricing is part of the equation. So is sugar an outlier in terms of commodities and crops and supports or are there other analogous commodities when it comes to how much support they're getting – from the government. Sugar got put into the farm bill back in the 80s, uh, which was a good thing for sugar because then it wasn't separate. It was a lot harder to pick it off as a separately subsidized crop than it was with cotton and all the other crops that are in the, in the agricultural bill. So I think that's really a critical moment for the sugar industry because then they all of a sudden were lumped in with all of the other crops that we do uh, that we do subsidize in this country, but not quite the way we do it with sugar. Is it possible to say what would be the implications of ending these supports for the domestic sugar industry? Um, I think it would probably be uh, a disaster for the sugar industry. But the sugar industry is a part of the gross agricultural product of this country uh, is less than 3%. In terms of employment in the state of Florida, it's very hard to know based on the employment statistics how many they actually directly employ. But it's somewhere around maybe seven or 8,000 people. Uh, that's directly and slightly indirectly in farming. Um, so that's not a large part of our economy, uh, but it certainly is a large part of our health issues. And that's really the point of the book.
We will get to that in just a second. Um, does sugar still play a role in terms of national security in the same way that it might have back during World War I and World War II? That's a good question. The answer is no. The world is changing, and uh, tanks and, uh, and artillery shells are becoming less and less significant as part of the military uh, operations that we have today. So I don't think that they occupy nearly the same – it occupies the same spot that it did in the Second and in the First World Wars. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Nick Penniman. He's author of the new book, On the Knife, A History of Sugar in Florida. Mr. Penniman spent his career in journalism. He was publisher of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and VP of Newspaper Operations for Pulitzer Publishing Company. To engage with us and your fellow listeners about our conversation, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So you just alluded to the health issues, that being part of the point of the book. Um, You know, it's that. It's also the environmental issues. So uh, there was a a passage in the book. I forget. I don't have it here. But basically, um, you know, the economic impact of sugar in Florida, while substantial, is not a huge part. It's dwarfed by, you know, development and tourism. tourism. Um, But it does have, you know, definitely has an environmental impact Mm -hmm. and there is a health impact. Which of those two impacts would you like to discuss first? Well, let's talk about the environmental impact. I think that's probably uh, because the two relate heavily to one another. I mean, when you have red tide, uh, you've got health issues, and that's right. an environmental issue that f- feeds over into the health issue. When you've got cyanobacteria coming out of Lake Okeechobee with blue-green algae, uh, you really got the perfect storm for human health. And I think that the two are immeasurably tied together, basically. Fair to say that the legacy nutrients in the lake aren't only there because of sugar. They're there because of, you know, what happens north of the lake. And while, from what I understand, while back pumping into the lake from the sugar and EAA does happen to a very small degree now, it used to happen a lot more. So now they can rightfully say that, well, we're not doing that. But what's in there is because the people before them did that, right? That is absolutely right. And I think that the, the big producers of sugar in the south of the lake, uh, the Fanhul companies and the United States Sugar Corporation and the cooperative, have all pretty much cleaned their act up. And I think that the last numbers that I saw, uh, <clears throat> which were 2019 numbers, I haven't seen the 2020 numbers, uh, were that about 85% of the pollutants, the toxins, and the nutrients coming in to the lake were coming in from the Kissimmee watershed north of the lake and maybe about 10%. Uh, from the EAA uh, for the back pumping and whatnot. Then, of course, once the rivers uh, push their cyanobacteria down, you've got all of the uh, septic tank pollution and whatnot that gathers together. It accelerates the whole process. So what you come get out of Lake Okeechobee uh, at certain levels of, of uh, nutrients is one thing, but once it gets down closer to the coast where the population is, it basically explodes. Is there more that could be done by the sugar industry to help with that equation? I know there's efforts to, well, there's the EAA reservoir that's being built. There's a broader effort to just move as much water south as possible, and that's where all the sugar farms are. You know, short of saying we're not going to farm here anymore, is there more that the sugar industry could do from your perspective? You know, Mike, that's a great question. And I think the answer is that they could just slow down a little bit on their opposition to every opportunity to try to solve this problem. 
For example, in August of this year, uh, the sugar growers have sued the Army Corps of Engineers to stop building the Everglades Reservoir south of the lake. Their argument is that the Corps uses a certain level of the lake to measure whether they have sufficient water to provide to the sugar people and the agricultural people down south of the lake. And the sugar industry is saying, well, they didn't do this right. We want them to do it again. Basically, uh, they're trying to prevent a fairly simple operation of 10,500 acres of a reservoir and about five or 6,000 acres of a STA, a treatment area. Stormwater treatment area. Yeah. So the two of those together total about 16,000 acres, uh, and they will help. Will they solve the problem? No. But the sugar industry went into court in August uh, and filed another lawsuit. So they're just being obstructive, in my personal opinion. There were plans for U.S. sugar to sell a very large tract of land in the Everglades agricultural area back in 2008. Uh, but then the, the recession hit, and so that all got wiped away, right? Right. The tax receipts came way, way down, uh, particularly from real estate transactions, which is where the money goes back to Tallahassee, and Tallahassee uses it to buy land. And when that happened, uh, Governor Christ bought a certain amount of land, limited amount, uh, but then Governor and, and had an option to buy the remaining land, and Governor Scott decided to cancel the option and not, uh, and not buy the land. Is the EAA reservoir being built on that little piece of land that was purchased? Yes. Well, part yes, part of it is and part of it is not. You tried to get U.S. Sugar to cooperate with your research for this book. You actually open up with an email from their spokeswoman, Judy Sanchez, right? It sounds like she was not at all on board with participating in this. Uh, no. Judy and I have, had, have had it a few times in, in public forums and debate, uh, and I was interested in – some of the decisions that they make and, and how they make them and why, um, which I thought were pretty pretty harmless. Um, and basically, you know, did they decide to cut by machine or cut by hand? And how did they make that kind of decision, make those choices, which really isn't controversial. It's just a business decision, um, which I thought maybe people would be interested in. But then there were other questions um, about burning a harvest on the fields, which I wanted to get an answer to because sometimes you cut green without burning it, and then sometimes you burn the top leaves off. Um, right now, there's a class action lawsuit was filed four years ago uh, because they burn the fields south of Lake Okeechobee, but they tend to burn them only when the wind is blowing from the east to the, to the west which is where all of the smaller towns are. Uh, when the wind blows from the west to the east, uh, the smoke and the detritus, which is called black snow, might actually end up in Palm Beach, and that's not what uh, they want to do. So there are lots of issues that you look at and you think, gee, you know, they maybe could do it a little better, but they tend to burn almost everything in Florida. Uh, Brazil right now is cutting almost everything green. So that would solve this particular problem of black snow. We talked about the green harvesting on this show a couple of years ago. And yeah, I think uh, there are some tests being done in Louisiana from what I understand, and it is growing in popularity or in use rather in Brazil and some of the places overseas, but they seem very resistant to it here. Um, and uh, we've also talked about the, uh, you know, the health impacts of particulate matter from these burns that are being mostly impactful on the poorer communities. So yeah. this is just something they don't want to talk about. I understand that. 
Um, the health impacts on when it comes to, you know, sugar on our bodies, not necessarily sugar's role when it comes to um, cyanobacteria blooms, you know, with their historic legacy yeah. nutrients. Um, the sugar industry as a whole has done a pretty good job of trying to, you know, throughout history, uh, negate complaints when it comes to obesity or tooth decay or things like that. They have, uh, Mike, but I think what's happening is it's somewhat like tobacco. Uh, you can deny, deny a long time, but eventually science is going to catch up with you. And I think that maybe is what's going to happen with, with sugar. Clearly, high fructose corn syrup is more importantly a driver of obesity in this country uh, than just pure cane granulated sugar or beet sugar. So I think that when the HFCS came in, high fructose came in, to all of our soft drinks, that really sort of impelled the whole system to push upward in terms of obesity and then type 2 diabetes. What they found now is that the number, amount of high fructose corn syrup is pretty well stabilized in terms of consumption in this country, but that coronary artery disease uh, is now uh, becoming an issue and that sugar, the direct correlation with uh, the incidence of coronary artery disease. I talked to a, a, a cardiac um, specialist to do this book, and he is convinced that the research is going to work very carefully into the whether or not that is, in fact, uh, a direct correlation between consumption of sugar in certain amounts and uh, coronary artery disease. This country, basically, I read yesterday, we're consuming 27 tablespoons of sugar in our average diet. Uh, the uh, recommended amount for a uh, adult male is 12, and for a woman is six. Uh, six would be an eight-ounce uh, can of Coca-Cola. So we're basically doing three or four times uh, the amount of sugar uh, that we should be in our diet, according to the World Health Organization. I just heard on NPR yesterday, and I think I have these facts right, and if not, I'll put a correction on the end of the show. Um, in 1990... No states had obesity levels higher than 25%. Today, all but three states do. Wow. Yeah. I know that 42% of the American population is mm -hmm. obese. Uh, and, and interestingly enough... And that's uh, not just sugar's fault. I want to make that clear. No, no, no. It's a but, lot. <laughs> but, it, but it's certainly part of the equation. Yeah, and unfortunately, it, it, uh, during the COVID, sort of the lockdown, uh, that number has increased uh, somewhat too, substantially enough for it to show up statistically. So when you set out to write this book, what were you hoping to learn or reveal? And do you feel like you learned or revealed it? You know, that's a very good question. There was another book written by uh, a woman, a professor named Gail Hollander on this, but she ended her story in 2010. Uh, and I felt that it was important to take the story up to the current time simply because of the 27-2018 outbreak of cyanobacteria coming down from Lake uh, Okeechobee down to Caloosahatchee. So I think that what this probably adds to the body of knowledge that's there right now is what happened between 2010 and 2020. Uh, so I tried to gather that 10 years to see if any changes had taken place in terms of environmental issues, health issues, and the financial support of the industry. 
And I think the answer is um, no in financial support, uh, no in environmental issues, and uh, probably in the financial area, um, the price of sugar in this country has gone up in the last 10 years. So basically, we are where we are, and uh, I had hoped to put this out so people would think about, you know, what we're doing by subsidizing this particular crop. Was there anything fundamentally different with the way it was handled between the Obama administration and the Trump administration and now the Biden administration? I don't know if we've had enough time under our belts for the Biden administration to have given us data. Yeah, and the answer is no. There's really no no difference in uh, – look, you know, it's really a legislative matter, not so much an administrative or executive matter in the government. And when you put as much money as you do in the halls of Tallahassee and the Congress, uh, you're probably going to get the result, the outcome that you want. And let's face the fact, you know, there are more sugar lobbyists in Tallahassee than there are legislators. So you have to understand that this is a process that is pushed hard in Tallahassee, so there's no state intervention. And in, then in Washington, when the Farm Bill comes up, uh, it's really time to pour the money in as hard as fast as you can. And that's the way it happens. That's the way it is. Our guest is Nick Penniman. He's author of the new book, On the Knife, A History of Sugar in Florida. Mr. Penniman, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Mike. By the way, the obesity statistics I cited were in fact correct. No states had obesity rates of 25% or higher in 1990, and today all but three states do, Colorado, Hawaii, and Massachusetts. You can find a link to that data on our website, wgcu.org gcl. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. Yeah.